We've got a couple of announcements, and the first one is is important for you to pay attention to in the details that I was able to work it out the other day that the schmooze room at Kenny and Ziggy's is, is open. And I uh, went up there. I was up there meeting some people for lunch last Friday and ran into Ziggy, and we went back there and looked at everything, and that's no problem. And so uh, what we're going to do is – Meet up there at 6.30. Now, you don't want to be late because Mitch is going to speak first. I haven't discussed that with him, but I haven't made a speak, met a speaker yet who wants to eat a big meal and then speak. So he's going to speak first, and then we will eat. So you want to be there by 6.30, not just at 6.30. Find your way back. And it's the new location, which is a little bit closer to San uh, San Philippi. And so you can go in there and you go in and make a left and then go back to the schmooze room, which is further down on the left. So that will be April the 10th at 6.30. Be there by then. He is the president of Chosen People Ministries, and he's going to speak on Jewish communities and evangelism in Eastern Europe. So, uh, and some other things, what's going on in Israel. His PhD dissertation was on uh, Jewish evangelism in Eastern Europe from 1900 to 1950, which is a f- uh, absolutely fascinating uh, study. So what we'll do is that attendees will order their meal from the menu and pay for it. Everybody's on their own. And we need an RSVP. We need an accurate head count. And so you can either respond to the email that went out or the ones that will be going out over the next couple of weeks or there is a sign-up sheet out in the fellowship hall for those of you who don't have email. Uh, and so all of this is important for getting an accurate count for the reservations. Then tomorrow morning early, I'm leaving to go to Tucson for a Bible conference that I've been doing every year at Tucson Bible Church, and that will be Wednesday night, Thursday night, and Friday night, and I think they live stream it on their Facebook page. I know several people already know that, but others don't. And then Thursday night, though, Jim Myers will be speaking. We have appointed him as a missions pastor at large for West Houston Bible Church. And part of his uh, new responsibilities is to help us put together a solid uh, missions committee and a plan and procedure for uh, selecting de- uh, selecting missionaries that are uh, that we would support financially, uh, those that are on our prayer list, things of that nature, and so that we can move from uh, just sort of putting things together as they came along, which we've done the first 16 or 17 years because we just had a small number. But as we progress, we're going to develop a a um, uh, uh, set uh, formula, so that will be our that will be the uh, developing the new uh, policy. So that will be good for everyone uh, to be here. Okay. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, 
but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so that we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord and that we are walking by the Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to understand his word and to retain it in our uh, the doctrine and the word in our souls. So let's uh, have a few moments of silent prayer, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening, and uh, we just pray for us as individuals as we face the realities of living in the devil's world, living in a world where there is uh, so much more evidence of chaos, whether it's the pandemic or whether it's war, whether it's economic problems, and we're faced with a host of them. And yet we as believers are supposed to be able to face these things with great stability we are supposed to be able to trust in you, rely upon you, and not let these things bother us or phase us or upset us or make us anxious or worried or anything else. So all of these things are really a test for us in an everyday basis just to trust in you, to rely on, upon you, that there is no promise in God's word that says that everything is going to be stable and wonderful and that uh, we are going to not have these kinds of uncertainties and difficulties in our life. And, Father, they give us a great opportunity to be a witness. But we need to have your word stored in our souls so that we can uh, use it and that we can um, uh, utilize it and, and, and claim promises, but also to tell these promises to others. And, Father, we are supposed to shine as lights in the midst of this extremely dark world and the perverse generation that inhabits this planet now. And so, Father, we pray that we might uh, have a hunger and a thirst for your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and we're going to wrap up this passage in 1 Timothy 2, 13 through 15 this evening, as well as hit a few high points in terms of the um, in terms of the review as to what we have been covering now just to remind you this is tuesday night we're studying in judges and judges is just a a a book that has one chapter after another one event after another uh one circumstance after another to illustrate what happens when people operate on moral relativism when we slip the anchor to moral absolutes, then what that leads to is not only the collapse of the lives and the thinking of the individuals, but it also leads to the collapse uh, of a nation. And this is explained in a different way in Romans chapter 1, as Paul described what would happen when people 
reject the knowledge of God and suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And that in that chapter, we see that, that then as man turns on negative volition in rejecting God, and when they are negative to God, they're always positive to the world system. And so I'll talk about that in just a minute, but they're positive to the thinking of the world. Uh, Romans 12.2 talks about it using the word ionos, which has the idea of the spirit of the age, the, the thinking of the age. And when people are positive to that, then it invades their soul. And God's response is, that's what you want? Okay, I'm going to let you do that. He turns them over. There's three stages in Romans 1 of God turns them over to. And that is how he judges a nation. He says, you want to go in that direction? Okay, I'm going to turn you over to that and let you, give you the permission to expand your evil and do all of the things that, that your sin nature wants you to do. And then if that doesn't correct you the course because you see how terrible that is, then I'll turn you over again and turn you over a third time. And so that's how God brings judgment. And so God allows evil to exist in the world for purposes that we can't fully comprehend. We can understand some things about them, but we can't understand uh in any kind of qualitative or exhaustive way. And that's really what the first book, I believe it was the first book written in the Old Testament, and that's the book of Job. The events in Job happened long before uh, it was written. I believe Moses probably probably wrote the book of Job, but we, we can't know. But the bottom line on Job is when Job finally gets to the point where he wants to... Uh, have a face-to-face sit-down with God about why God let this suffering come into his life. Um, that really is what the book is all about. And God's response is that, number one, you don't have the right to question me because I'm the God of the universe and I know more than you do to an infinite degree. And number two, I'm going to ask you a series of questions and to expose the level of your ignorance just to show that if I did answer the question, you wouldn't understand it. So you're not supposed to question why is God letting this happen because that's turning your focus inward, and then you just become self-absorbed. That's just a function of our sin nature. So we have to turn it back to God, and that sometimes isn't very easy. And then we, and, and that happened uh, with, with Job. And at the beginning of the book of Job, there's three different times in Job 1 and 2 when God says uh, that Job is uh, upright and blameless and there's no fault in him because he wants to make the point that, that, that the evil that comes into Job's life, the suffering, the adversity that he faces uh, is be- as a result of living in the cosmic system, and God allows it for a purpose to teach and to train, and we just can't comprehend how all those dynamics are taking place. And so we now live as believers in a post-Christian uh, country, despite we've left our founding, and if you study history, you know nobody ever goes resets the clock. It's never happened. Now, we may go forward and go in a better direction as we turn back to God, but we can't turn the clock back. There's not one example where you go, okay, we made a mistake in the last election. Let's correct it this time. Uh, we, we can't see that. And you look at the trajectory of what's been going on in this country for the last 175 years, 
it's all been in the same direction. There's a few times when it levels off and it's sort of a plateau, and then it just keeps going down, but it's never reverse course. And so we have to recognize that as a believer. Once we recognize that, we can have uh, a genuine uh, calmness in our soul because we know God's in control, and whatever happens around us, this gives us the opportunity uh, to trust him and to be a witness uh, to the culture around us. But Job is the, I mean, uh, Judges is the book that tells us what's, what the root problem is. It's everyone doing what's right uh, in their own eyes. And as part of that, they shift, they abandon God, as we looked uh, at the term used several times in Judges 1 and 2. They abandon God. Basically, it's a treasonous act, and they turn to these false gods and goddesses who are all nature gods. They're all worshiping the creation, the, 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 the creature and the creation rather than God. And that's what's going on today. It, we're seeing it all over the place, and part of what I've been trying to do in talking about the monism and everything is giving you the sort of the perspective and the the uh, spiritual discernment glasses as it were to be able to pick up on what's actually going on uh going on around us and we see in um number of places that this this paganism has just really taken over even in churches in numerous evangelical churches they they haven't really grasped the whole whole issue and they're not any different than those outside the church. And th- this is a result of a failure to take the Bible as, God, as God's word. So we have to understand that the word of God teaches something about God's creation, that everything about it is going to run 180 degrees opposite what the world system teaches. And that means that, that we're always going to be on, on the outside. We're never going to be holding the popular opinions. We're never going to be accepted, especially when the, when the culture gets to where we are, uh, where we are today. And I've used this chart that the biblical view is that God is the triune God, the personal infinite creator, and he is totally distinct from his creation. That's what this black horizontal line is. Now, the right side pictures the way the world looks at the universe. It's all within one circle, and God, man, and nature are all within that circle, and that's basically monism. There are shades of differences within monism, but it's all things are ultimately one. And so what we've learned in this study, coming out of Judges 4 and 5, where there's clearly an indication that the there's a problem with Barak as a man, as a, as a, the general, that he doesn't want to go into battle uh, unless Deborah goes with him. Deborah is highlighted at the beginning of Judges 4, but she's not really mentioned again after the first several verses. She is a prophetess, and she is a judge. That She is not a teacher in the New Testament sense. She's not a pastor teacher. She is not someone who's teaching the word at all. As a prophetess, you're just a a channel. God, God tells you you're going to say A, B, C, and D, and then you go out and you say, thus says the Lord, A, B, C, and D, and you're just um, reiterating what God has told you. 
And that is very different from the role of a teacher, a pastor, and uh, someone who has authority over over a a congregation. So we came to study in the New Testament what the Bible teaches about these role distinctions. We looked at 1 Corinthians 11, and now we're finishing up with 1 Corinthians, I mean 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 uh, through 15. And so just the overview, it starts with the command that it, where Paul says, let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And I emphasize the word silence there because it's repeated at the end. So actually you have a phrase to, that relates to learning in silence and that that is related to submission. And then at the center is this statement, I do not permit a woman to teach and then to nor to have authority over a man, that is the flip side of with all submission. Um, and then it closes with, but to be in silence. So the the whole statement is formed in those two verses in a very precise manner in order to focus the attention on that first statement that I do not permit a woman to teach. And then in addition, uh, to have authority over a man. And then it's explained. That's where we are tonight. It's explained. You see that first word, for. And in Greek, this is a word. It's gar, G-A-R, and it always introduces an explanation or gives a reason for something. Now, we'll look at this in more detail as I go through this because it's really amazing when you read the what, what they call the egalitarian. See, there's two views. The view that uh, men and women are equal and interchangeable in all their roles comes out of the, uh, the spirit of the age. It comes out of uh, human viewpoint thinking, and it's called egalitarianism. The view that uh, biblicists, conservative biblicists, uh, use is that this is complem- that the role of men and women is complementary, not with an I. It's not that they're telling each other good things, a complement in that sense, but that they support one another. But the primary role and responsibility of leadership is on the male, and the female, the wife, is to uh, support the husband, and her primary mission is to be a helper uh, to the husband uh, spiritually. And tonight we're going to get into uh, the last two verses, uh, which are, are difficult. There's a lot of different um, interpretations of these passages, but what's amazing is the the um, fa- fantastic in the sense of fantasy, the fantastic interpretations that the egalitarians come up with uh, that's totally divorced from any kind of real exegesis. So I've emphasized this again and again because when we get to what's happening today, because God created these distinctions, God made various uh, divisions and distinctions in Genesis chapter 1, that what happens is that in paganism and in monism is the, to destroy these distinctions. And we've got a real problem today with, um, with this whole cross-gender, gender confusion thing. I don't like using the term gender to, as a synonym for sex. Gender is an, should be and should have been confined to a grammatical term. But that's you've heard me talk on that, and that's a different story. But you have situations now where... 
there's almost an encouragement of children, young children. Uh, You see them start to play with a doll, and all of a sudden, oh, my little boy is really a little girl, that somehow he's a little girl trapped in a boy's body. And I know that that just, uh, and, and then you have schools and you have governments and you have laws in some places that prohibit parents from doing anything other than encouraging that. And then they're allowed to do all kinds of medical procedures when they're uh, prepubescent. And this is so destructive, and I think that fortunately the, the uh, attorney general and the governor of the state of Texas have taken the stand that this is child abuse, and they're 100% correct. And these parents are just doing terrible things to their children. And But there's also situations where you have believers who have worked uh, diligently at raising their child, and then they hit puberty, and one day you have your son come in and said, say, Mommy, I'm really a girl. What are you going to do? Now, I don't have all the answers to that, but there is a book out there. We've had it here. It's called um, Mommy, I'm a Girl, and it is written by Judy Glennie, and uh, her husband is Gary Glennie. He's pastor of a church up near Portland. And a lot of this developed while they were up there. They'd originally been at a church in um, Farmington, New Mexico, I believe. And uh, so she wrote this book later. And uh, sadly, and uh, the, the, the son, uh, I, I haven't read all the way to the end, so I don't know how he died, but he, he dies when he's, a, when he's a teenager. I'm guessing he probably committed suicide. And it's a very sad story. Yeah, he committed suicide. I got a nod from somebody in the back who knows the story. And uh, it, it's very sad, but I would recommend that if you know anybody or within your family you have this going on, this is a book that I would recommend. Uh, uh, her husband's a doctrinal pastor. They've, he's been to, uh, to Chafer Conference several times, brought copies of the book when it first came out. But that's that's a, um important book to look at. And the interesting thing is that this their son did not show any of those trends that a lot of people think of when he was a, a, a child. He didn't want to play with G.I. Joe because G.I. Joe's a doll. So he didn't want to play with dolls. He didn't want to do all of the other stereotypical kind of things that that people go to saying, well, you know, maybe he's really a girl trapped in a boy's body or the other other way around. And so it's important, and that's why I've developed this, is that we have to deal with the root problem. And the root problem is we live in a fallen world, and we're all sinners. And uh, Jeremiah says that the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things who can know it. Because of sin, life is corrupted. Our bodies are corrupted. We're born with corrupt fallen bodies that are prone to sickness, disease. We have things that are going on in our bodies that are uh, related to physical, uh, for lack of a better term, we uh, just just so, some sort of a physical lack of correct uh, uh, correct communication between the brain and whatever. I can't, can't go into any more detail than that. I don't know. But any more than I know how an immaterial soul connects and 
uh, uses a material brain. Uh, that was a major problem that uh, question that that uh, occupied a lot of attention uh, by the scholastics in the Middle Ages. And so we don't understand some of these things. We don't understand how that sin nature that is seems to be located in the corruption of the physical body is interacting with that which is uh, immaterial in the soul. Uh, you, you, you say, well, may, maybe it's all material. Well, then you've got a real problem. That's, that's what kids are being taught today. There's no such thing as an immaterial soul. All you have, everything is physical. Everything is, uh, deals with uh, the various uh, electrical mechanisms within the body and deals with the various chemical constructions and uh, chemical operations that are produced within the body because all you are is a, a, a machine. All you are is a biological machine and everything can be manipulated. And this, of course, is a complete rejection of everything the Scripture teaches. But if you start with that kind of an anthropology that mankind, the human beings, are just an accident that developed out, out of some primordial slime with some sort of electrical discharge, you can't go from arguing that a, a human being is physical and material, you can't leap to something that is immaterial. So if you start with any form of evolution then you're limited in your options. You can't, you can't leap to an immaterial soul in man. So you're left with just a biological, biological machine. And so your explanations for why these things happen are, are going to be limited. So even though we live in the corrupt bodies and everything is corroded by sin, it doesn't remove God's design for the roles and functions of men and women within his plan. That, that image of God is not destroyed. There are some Christians that teach that, but that is not, or some theologians that teach that, but that's not what the Bible says. It is, it is corrupted. It's marred, but it is, it, it is not totally removed. And in the process of sanctification, spiritual growth and spiritual maturity, we are being conformed to what? The image of Christ. So there is a there can be a reversal of the damage that is done in the imageness of man through uh, spiritual uh, sanctification. So we have to recognize that the Bible says men and women are are equally in the image of God. There is nothing that makes a woman less significant, less um, less in the image of God. Uh, less significant than uh, a man. And the, the distortion of that is the result of, of sin. So men and women, though, are designed for different roles and different functions, and that is essential to understand. And to understand that is, does not mean that one is a sexist or is a misogynist or any of the other distortions that the uh, spirit of the age wants to throw at us. Uh, sin corrupts our understanding, and we go, come into things with a presupposition that is totally human viewpoint, and we have to let the Word of God transform that, and that's a function of God the Holy Spirit and our volition. Sin corrupts our biology. None of us are what we would like to be. Just look in the mirror. Enough said.
Paganism attempts to redefine the meaning of male and female, that these are just social or cultural constructs imposed upon people, and therefore, if you get caught in this trap of thinking there are distinctions, then you're just a racist. Racism isn't about race anymore. Have you noticed that? Racism about is about anything that you believe that doesn't fit the spirit of the age. So if you don't believe that uh, Leah Thomas should be competing with um, uh, against women in, in sports, then you're racist. Everything's been redefined by, by the left. So in our passage, we began with this last time. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over man, but to be in silence. And then he explains it. For Adam was formed first, and then Eve. Where did that come from? Can you look at verse 13 and say, well, that came out of Genesis 3, because that was after the fall. Really? That's what a lot of people want to say. But that's not true. How do you prove that? 1 Timothy 2.14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. How does What's that all about? And then the fun one is the last one. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing. And most people stop there. And they think, well, is that works? What about women who are barren? What about women who can't have children? What about single women who never get married? Uh, they can't be saved? Is this work salvation? What is that talking about? And people almost always ignored the last phrase, the if clause, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. So we've uh, looked at the context, that the context in First and Second Timothy and Titus is that they are the pastoral epistles. They're called that for a reason. Paul didn't sit down and write them and say, well, this is the first pastoral epistle and this is the second. When you read them, they are called the pastoral epistle because they focus on uh, the local church issues, role and qualifications for church leaders, specific issues related to responsibilities, uh, priorities for worship in the local church so that it's done in order, and it still addresses a spiritual life issues for that are true for every believer. And we looked at context. Paul wrote uh, in his first, or excuse me, Paul's first imprisonment ended around 62, and he wrote the pastorals after this. So uh, the second second Timothy is in his second uh, second imprisonment. The argument of the egalitarians is basically this syllogism. Paul wrote 1 Timothy to counteract a specific situation in the life of the church. They had women in the church who were teaching false doctrine, and that's why he's saying those women can't teach. Second, uh, they have as a minor premise that nothing written to a specific situation is normative for the church today. And their conclusion is that, therefore, 1 Timothy contains no directives for the church today. Well, let's just take our uh, X-Acto knife out and let's cut those pages out of, out of Scripture because they don't have anything to say. Why don't they have anything to say? Well, because anything that's written to counteract a specific situation in the life of the church doesn't have anything to do with us. Okay, well, then let's take 1 Corinthians out. Let's take 2 Corinthians out. 
Let's take Romans out, because all of these epistles were written to address certain issues in certain local churches, because those situations in those churches are common situations that every church faces over the years, every community of churches faces. You have all of these different issues, and so they show us that the, the mandates of Scripture are grounded in the realities of of church life with people who are who are fallen and have problems. So we looked at this last time, looking at the issue of how silence ought to be uh, tre- treated and translated. It's not that a, that emphasizing women should learn in absolute silence. It's the idea of quietly. And First uh, Timothy two eleven, the way I've translated is let a woman quietly receive instruction with all submissiveness. The NET translates it: a woman must learn quietly with all submissiveness. This is a command. It's a third person uh, type of command. We don't have a third person imperative in English, but you have it in other other languages. First Timothy two two uses this same word where it says for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life. This doesn't mean that you keep your mouth shut the whole time. It's it's that it's undisturbed. It's a, tr- a tranquil existence that is not uh, uh, characterized by a lot of talking and in the sense of distraction. A woman is to be um, emphasized a hidden person of her the heart, that is the soul, with the incorruptible beauty of a humble and quiet spirit. Same idea. So we see this word over and over again, and it is a word that just emphasizes uh, quietly. And we have it at the beginning, let a woman quietly receive instruction, and you have it at the end. So this forms an an inclusio as a way of emphasizing um, that which is between the outer brackets. 2 Thessalonians 3.12 uses the same word that those uh, who are such that it, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work quietly and eat their own bread. We all appreciate it when we're working in the workplace that uh, there's calm and quiet and there's not a lot of disruption and distraction. Now, the most important thing we have to understand is what Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, no matter what the issue is in life. First of all, we're challenged that we present our bodies. And he says bodies because he's talking about our whole life, not just the soul, but the body, which if your body is presented to God, your soul goes with it because they're, they're in union. So we present our bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And the word there for reasonable service is a word from which we get our English word liturgy. It's liturgos, which has to do with with our service to God in worship, so that our whole lives are supposed to be an act of worship towards God. And then we have the word and. So this is the next command. Number one, present your bodies a living sacrifice and do not be pressed into the mold of the spirit of the age. Now, the tip, uh, you know, New King James translation is don't be conformed to this world. But world is, t- is usually the uh, translation of cosmos. It's not cosmos here. It's ionios, which has the idea of the spirit of the age, uh, the way of thinking. Don't be pressed in the, into the way of thinking of the people around you. 
Don't pick up their value systems. Don't think about their opinions. Let your values and your opinions be shaped by the Word of God. Be transformed by the renewing of your thinking. So the issue is you have a lot of people who when they, they, they're so influenced by a modern feminist viewpoint that when they go to scripture, they see something, oh, that's wrong. That, that, I've always been told that's, um, that, that's misogynistic. Uh, that is uh, hostile to women. So that can't be what God said. So we have to make it mean uh, something else. And so when you get into uh, 1 Timothy 2.11, and Paul is talking about that I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority, the presupposition they bring from their uh, from the spirit of the age that they've picked up is that this guy really hates women. And I can't tell you how many people who come out of other Christian traditions that I have heard say with a straight face and all sincerity, Paul hated women. Paul was a misogynist. He hated women. But that's not true. The way Paul treats women in in the epistles is totally different from the way that Greeks would and totally different from the way rabbis would. Rabbis would never even name a woman. And Paul names women. Paul starts his Bible class, the first Bible class in Philippi, uh, going to Lydia. And then he stays at her house. And so he elevates women, names them, honors them, makes positive statements about about him, uh, about women. There's there's nothing in the way he handles women that is that is typical of any non-Christian in the ancient world. So he says, "I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man." So, but to remain, uh, to, but to remain quiet. Now, the word for receive instruction is important because it's the verb montano, which is the a cognate of mathetes for a disciple. So, discipling somebody is simply instructing them. I think ever since the mid 20th century, when we had a lot of campus groups and some military groups that emphasized, oh, we have to do it the way Jesus did it, so we need to have a lot of small groups and do discipleship. Uh, there are a lot of positive things that the navigators did. But, but this idea that Dawson Trotman had, that you have to have these small groups, you have to have that, that Jesus set the pattern, and so the pattern is small groups, doesn't play out. You can't even find the word disciple anywhere in the book of Acts. You can't see it working. You find a couple of places somebody who's a disciple of John the Baptist and that, but you don't have it work, working out. We are to disciple means simply to give instruction and training uh, to somebody. They're doing that, but you don't see them, anybody operating with this kind of a small group uh, mentality. So there's, there is to, the focus is that we have to learn in that process of, of Romans 12 2, where we're not being conformed to the world, but being transformed. Now, let me say something I think is really important because every now and then I hear people say things, they don't want certain things said from the pulpit. Usually it's, oh, I don't want a pastor talking about politics. Well, don't you think politics is affected by sin? Don't you think how you think about the divine institutions and how you think about uh, societies and how they're organized together, uh, that God doesn't have something to say about that? God has something to say about everything. 
There's no area of intellectual activity that isn't addressed by the Scripture. And so we have to talk about all all of these things. That's part of what it means to uh, not be conformed to the world. But there's something else about that phrase. If we're not to be conformed to the world, then we have to understand what the dynamics of the spirit of the age are. Otherwise, we won't know it unless we see it. Or, or, excuse me, we won't know it when we see it. And so a lot of Christians are not taught very much, and so they don't understand what the, what the ideas are in our culture that are contrary to the Word of God because the, the pastors limit themselves to talking about salvation and a few basic Christian life themes, very basic Christian life themes, and they, they never get into anything that might be controversial because if you start identifying all of the basic values that are, come out of the uh, w- pagan worldview of the culture, you're going to be walking, stomping on a lot of people's toes. But that's what the Word of God does. That's what Jesus did. And when Jesus was teaching, he was crunching the toes of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, not intentionally, but they were so committed to a, a false way of thinking and to false values that when Jesus contradicted them, uh, they just reacted in anger. There, there was no objectivity. So we have to teach what the Word of God says over against the background of the cosmic system of the spirit of the age so that people can understand uh, what it is that, that they're not to be conformed to. So, And part of this is right now we see it. It's this whole thing of sexual identity confusion. And you can't go anywhere. Your four-year-old grandson or your four-year-old son can't go anywhere without this being in his face. It's going to be in the cartoons. It's going to be in the books at school. And you and I have all read these horrible stories about parents who have gotten active, and they've gone down and started looking at the books that are in the libraries in some schools, not all schools. There are a lot of schools where you have very attentive faculty and uh, principals, but there are some schools where they haven't been, and they discovered that they have some books that are pornographic that are teaching children things that I don't even want to think about in these books targeting fourth graders, fifth graders, and sixth graders. Now, that's not every school. I think too many times you're listening to talk radio, you're listening to uh, various people who are uh, engaged in this battle, and they talk as if this is every school, every teacher, and that's just not true. There are a lot of schools and a lot of teachers and a lot of faculty. It was amazing. When we went up to Connecticut... Uh, my wife got a job uh, for a while working down in New London, and um, in, in her team in ele- elementary school, there was the wife of a pastor and there was a woman pastor, uh, but they all had these values of a Judeo-Christian worldview, and they would pray. And you would think, wow, in liberal Connecticut? Sure. You know, just because there's the school down the street is loaded with paganism and is hostile to Christianity doesn't mean that's true for every school. So we have to be careful with that. Um, 
So Paul's talking about what what is permissible, what he allows, and it's permissible because his value system is from the revelation of God. And he talks about teaching. Now, what happens in in this scenario uh, from uh, from the way the egalitarians want to interpret this is that this is not just teaching. This is a negative. They are teaching false doctrine. Why would they say that? Because part of the issue in um, in First Timothy is that Paul is correcting them and warning them about those who are coming into the church who are teaching false doctrine. But if if he was concerned about that, then he would be using a, a different word than just didasco. That whenever you see false teaching, you see it, it like pseudo didaskalos. The pseudo is false, or there's something in the context that's telling you that it is talking about something false. So he's talking about teaching, and the teaching here is not the kind of teaching where you might get uh, five or six people sitting around a table together just trying to work their way through uh, an understanding of what they heard in a message or what the Scripture says. I remember lots of times when I was a counselor, uh, at Camp Penal, sitting around uh, at night, and we would just start thinking about some of the things that, that we, we had been taught or something that we heard recently and trying to understand it and talking about it. That's not what, we're, what, what Paul is saying here. It's not what when um, Priscilla and Aquila are trying to straighten out um, um, Apollos because he didn't know uh, about Christ is that they're, they're, they're not teaching him in this sense. And so we, we have to look at how the word is used. So Paul uses it in 1 Timothy 2.12. He uses it in 1 Timothy 4.11. These things a command and teach. He's talking about his role as a pastor. He is to command and teach these things. First Timothy 16, 6, 2 rather. And those who have believing masters, let them, that is dealing with slaves, those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are, who are benefited are believers and beloved. And then he addresses Timothy, teach and exhort these things. Going back to Sunday morning, notice he doesn't say preach. It's instruction, Second Timothy two two, and the things that you have heard from me and among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach or instruct others also. And then Titus one eleven, whose mouths must be stopped related to the false teachers who subvert whole households, teaching things which they ought not for the sake of dishonest game. That teaching is coming within the framework of a lo- local church, that false, false teaching. So teaching is, in this context, is a positive or negative thing. It is a positive thing. It is giving, in, giving positive instruction. And the same thing, you have Second Timothy 4.3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, sound teaching, but according to their own desires. See, those desires come out of the spirit of the age. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves 
teachers that are in accord with their own desires. Now, the second issue is that word for authority, because this is a an unusual word in the Bible. It's only used here, and it's that top word, authenteo. You can see how we get our English word from this word, A-U-T-H, as the beginning of, of, of the word. And it simply means to have uh, authority o- over someone. Now, what happens is a lot of scholars try to make an issue out of this as being a, a unique verb, and they try to argue that it means something such as domineering, uh, exercising authority in a wrong way over someone. So that would be a negative concept. But you have other words that are used in the Scripture as well. You have words like um, huperoke, which is used earlier in, in the chapter, and it's used in uh, the second verse for kings and all who are in authority. And that's only used a couple of times in Scripture. And exousia and its, its uh, verb form, exousiazo, uh, has the idea of exercising authority. Now, why is this important? Because what you'll say is, oh, this word is only used one time, so let's not make a big deal about this. This is what it means. Problem is that authenteo is only used about three times, and, um, and exousiazo is used about six times. And some other words like curiao from lording it over, that's used six times. So these are not words that are used uh, numerous times in the scripture, the, the, the verbs. So they're trying to make an issue out of, out of the whole thing. So the question is, does didasco mean to teach false doctrine? The context determines that. The liberal view is, and the way they want to translate it is, I do not... Uh, permit a woman to teach falsely or domineer over a man. Now, notice, they've taken teaching as a negative concept, teaching falsely, and authority as domineering over a man, both as, as negatives. The problem is, and I've referenced this book before, uh, the w- women in the church, that Andreas Kostenberger has a chapter in there where he goes through every single use where you have two things linked by the conjunction udef, which is in this passage. And what he shows, painstaking, it's a lot of fun to go through this sort of stuff, is that they're either both negative or they're both positive. I'll say that again. Either both terms are going to be negative or both terms are going to be positive. You're not going to have one that's negative and one that's positive. So when you look at didasco, which we just did, in the pastorals, it's always used in a positive sense of teaching the word, except for the one instance in Titus, which is uh, dealing with a different situation and it's calling out a false teacher, which is obvious from the, from the context. So teaching in 1 Timothy is always positive, teaching the word. Teaching in 2 Timothy is always positive, teaching the word. So you have to translate, I do not permit a woman to teach, that that teaching is, is a positive word in terms of teaching the word, because that's how it's used every place else. And so if that's a positive sense, then... Um, authenteo has to be positive as just exercising authority. And since when you do a study of that word as it's used in secular Koine Greek at the time, it never has a connotation 
in and of itself of domineering. It's not there. And that's what these guys do is they just do a tremendous amount of work on that. So the conservative biblicist view is to translate it, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man. There's not a negative context there. It's just a, a, a blanket thing. So we see when we start looking at the reason for the prohibition, I'm going to jump here, the reason for the prohibition is that Paul goes to creation. He doesn't go to culture. He doesn't say, this is how the Greeks do it, or this is how the, the rabbis do it. And that's the same thing we saw in 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12. Nevertheless, neither is man independent of woman, nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as woman came from man, remember, where, where is he talking about? Genesis 2. Man is created first, and then God causes a deep sleep on Adam, and he takes from his side and he forms a woman, uh, actually the term in the, in the Hebrew is he builds a woman out of the material he took from the side of the man so that the woman comes from the man, indicating there's a, a genetic unity in all human beings. For as woman came from man, even so man comes also comes through woman, but all things are from God. So in 1 Timothy 2.13... He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And he uses uh, this, this phrase, formed, is, uses a verb, plasso, which means to form or to mold. Now, in, in, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, God is going to take the woman in 2, 7, 2, 8, a couple other verses, uh, when he creates man, he forms him. He takes the chemicals of the soil and forms him yatser. It's a word used of a, of a potter shaping the clay. That same word is used uh, of the for, forming of the woman and building the woman as well. So you go back and you look at how that word is used. When it's translated into the Septuagint, it used plasso, which translates yatser. So this all connects together. It shows that Paul's thinking about Genesis Genesis 2. He's not thinking about Genesis 1. There when it says that God made man and woman, it uses the word uh, in the Greek, poieo, which translates a different creation verb, asa, from, the, from Genesis chapter 1. So he's obviously thinking in terms of Genesis 2. Now, why is that important? Because that's before the fall. You don't find these verbs after the fall. And that's important because a lot of people want to come along and say, well, see, now you have authority in the home, and authority by definition is bad. But if authority within a structure is bad, then you've got a real problem with the Trinity and the fact that the second person of the Trinity submits to the authority of the Father, and he's not less equal. He's equal in all attributes. So ultimately, as I pointed out, if you reject the interpretation that's here, uh, that is a historical interpretation of First Timothy 2 and the conservative view, you've got a real problem with your view of Jesus. You're committing heresy that by implication you've got to be consistent. So that's a real problem. So then we come, we see that there's an order. Adam is, is created first and, and then, then Eve. And so we have to, um, 
see that order, and the order indicates a priority, which is what we studied when we went carefully through Genesis 1, 26 to 28 at the beginning of this study, and then we went to Genesis 2. We saw that in Genesis chapter 1, just to, just to remind you, in Genesis chapter 1, we have a clear statement in the way that it's, it's written that God created male and female in the image of God. In Genesis 1, uh, 26, he says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then what are they supposed to do? Have dominion over all of the animals on the earth. So they're placed in dominion. So, verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So that's talking about humanity, the word for man. He created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, as soon as he talks about the distinction of male and female, he then blesses them, and the first thing, what does he say in the first part of his blessing? Be fruitful and multiply. That is directly related to the fact that he created them male and female, that their first purpose is to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, to engage in sexual intercourse and have children to populate the earth because they alone are not going to be able to have dominion over the whole earth. And so the the idea is that God created them uh, if they had not sinned to have generation after generation after generation that would then uh, oversee the the earth and rule as God's vice gerents. So this is all significant, and that's the background for what uh, Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 2.13. And then he goes from chapter 2 to chapter 3. It was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into, tra- uh, fell into uh, transgression. Transgression is a violation uh, of, of the standard. And what's interesting when you get into this is that that the the way in which uh, the liberals try to explain this away, they will shift to allegory. This is an allegorical, or it's typological. It's not a literal historical event. That is that is one approach. Uh, another approach is that uh, makes Adam just a type of teachers and. Um, and, and relates it to just some kind of a of a spiritual mean, meaning. So they the simplest, straightforward meaning and interpretation of the text is what you have from the complementarian position. And they'll say, well, you know, they'll make issues out of the order, and they'll make issues, well, the woman's deceived. Well, wasn't Adam deceived? Sure. Everybody's deceived when they sin to some degree. But it's talking about what exactly what was said in Genesis 3. What did the woman say? The Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, there have been a number of people who have made an illegitimate application here saying, well, there's more of a tendency for women to be deceived. I don't think that's true even though you do have a lot of cults that have been started by women who are under deception, but you also have Muhammad, who was a man, and he's deceived, and you have Joseph Smith, who was a man, and and he was deceived. 
uh, it is that the woman is deceived, but what happens in, in Genesis chapter 3 is that the man fails to exercise his leadership role in the situation. Now, if you take a careful look at what happens in Genesis chapter 3, what we read in verse 6 is so after the temptation has been made, after the trap's been baited, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And then almost as an afterthought, but it's at the same time, she also gave to the husband with her. Now, that's often glossed over. I don't think I've ever made this point before. The, he's with her when she's being tempted by Satan in the form of the serpent. And he doesn't say anything. He doesn't step in. He doesn't exercise his leadership role. And so we see that the, that, that this is the, the beginning of this, this breakdown in those role relationships, which is what's going to be highlighted when God announces the judgment. So the Lord said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So this is part of the foundation. And then there's a contrast. So the next verse is not separated, okay, from the, from the verse before, but indicates that there is a problem that happens as a result of what the, the deception of the woman, and there's a corrective for it. When you, we got into Genesis 3, we studied this, that when um, God announced that there would be enmity or excuse me, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in your conception. So her original creation mandate was to be fruitful and multiply. But now there's going to be sorrow, and in pain you will bring forth children. Your desire, and that we saw that was the Hebrew word teshuka, it's not a positive desire. It is a desire to control and to dominate. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So the negative for the husband is the word rule. It, 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 in many places, it's used in terms of a uh, strong, domineering type of ruling. So hence we have the beginning of, of the battle, battle of the sexes. And you see this same thing in verse uh, 7 of chapter 4. If you, when God is confronting Cain with his sin, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, if you're not obedient to what I've taught you, sin lies at the door and its desire is to control you. Sin's desire in our, in our lives is to control us. But it says, but you should rule over it. It's the same word for rule. You have the same word for desire and the same word for rule. And it indicates that, that we have to exercise control over, over our sin nature. So when we come to 1 Timothy 2.15, this certainly sounds very strange. In what sense, because I've translated it preserved, uh, it's the word sozo, to be saved. And in many translations, they translate it, women shall be saved through the bearing of children. What sense is this salvation? One writer, Susan Foe, a woman who wrote a book on women in the Bible, 
uh, back in the 70s, which was a very good conservative, uh, or, or very good articulation of the conservative position, came to this verse and she just punted. She said, it's a puzzle and sort of a non sequitur. In other words, it doesn't really fit. I don't understand it. Let's move on. And there, other hand, you have uh, some scholars that think this verse is the key to the whole uh, interpretation of the passage, which it, which it isn't. And so there's a lot of different views. So we can ask a number of questions. Is Paul suggesting a salvation by works? Well, we know that's absurd. Paul would not do that. He's not saying women are saved in the sense of phase one justification by by um, by having children. What's the subject of the verbs save and continue? So that gets into a lot of other issues. I'm not going to get into the details on that. Uh, what would be so virtuous about bearing children that could become the cause of a woman's salvation? What about single women or married women who do not, who do not or cannot have children? We have some different translations. Uh, the New King James, nevertheless, you'll be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, or self-control. Uh, secondly, uh, another one, yet she shall be saved through childbearing if they continue. Uh, I think that's three copies of the same thing. I don't know what I was doing with that slide. Um, I would translate it this way. The word preserved is sozo. We have to understand what that means. This is our familiar slide. Saved is used in three senses if it's spiritual salvation. Phase one is a justification. We believe Christ died for our sins, and we are saved from the penalty of sin, and we're justified. That's not what's going on here. The second is the spiritual life. We're saved from the power of sin. And the third is glorification. We're saved from the presence of sin. Well, we can exclude that. We also have to recognize that this word has a secular sense in terms of just being preserved or just being just being healed. And Paul, we'll come back to this slide, but where I'm going with this is I think it has to do with this, the spiritual life of a person, be, uh, of the woman, because what's being reversed experientially is some of the consequences of the of the of the judgment at the fall is that this this role relationship domineering thing. So he's talking about that, that through childbirth, what are you doing? As a woman, you are fulfilling that primary function stated in Genesis 1, 26 and 27 to be fruitful and multiply. So you are within God's plan and purpose for the role of the, of the wife. The role of the woman is to uh, bear the children. Now, another thing we have to look at is just how sozo's used by Paul. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Is that phase one, phase two, phase three? Pop quiz. That's phase one. First Timothy 2, 4, he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That is phase one. First uh, Timothy 4.16, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this as a pastor, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. That's not phase one. That's talking about spiritual life growth. Phase two, sanctification. Second uh, Timothy 4.18, the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. This is phase three. 
2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by, by him to do his will. What we see is that the ultimate backdrop is Satan goes about like a roaring lion, sec, uh, second, or First Peter uh, 5, 6 or 7, goes about like a roar, roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That's the ultimate enemy in the spiritual life is thinking like the devil, cosmic thinking. And so what we see here is that we are not to give in to sin because when we do, in Ephesians 4.27, it's giving place to the devil. So this is talking about the sanctification of the woman. Well, how does having a baby make me spiritually mature? It's part of your role as, as a woman in terms of the original creation, creation mandate. So this is part of progressive sanctification. Now, the phrase that is ignored by most people is the last part of this. And that is so important because what, what the scripture goes on to say is that she will be saved in childbearing. It doesn't have a period. It has a conditional clause. The conditional clause is what is related to sanctification. Continuing in faith, love, and the word holiness is hagiosune, which means sanctification. That's the primary meaning, being set apart, sanctified in the, to the service of the Lord with self-control. So what we see here is it's not talking about phase one. It's talking about phase two. The first example is she's functioning in her role as a wife and as a woman as designed by God at the very beginning. But what about those who don't have babies? Well, the rest of the verse tells you what the ultimate issues are. It's not having babies. It's continuing in faith. And in love, where do we find faith and love connected together? 1 Corinthians thirteen thirteen, And these continue faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. These are spiritual virtues. Holiness is sanctification. That's phase, phase two. And self-control is part of the fruit of the Spirit. So what we're looking at here is that this isn't an odd verse, although the way it's translated makes it appear that way. But this is a verse that focuses on the fact that the role of the woman is in a lot of ways the same as the role of the man, and that is to continue in, in faith and continue in, um, continue in love and continue in self-discipline, that these are those ultimate virtues. So in conclusion, if the woman focuses on her God-ordained role within the home and mother, along with the spiritual qualities of faith, love, holiness, and self-control. that's the Those are the spiritual qualities that are important. She'll grow spiritually in phase two sanctification. This doesn't mean women should not work outside of the home or that single women will not be fulfilled. For what is true about the woman in childbearing is true about all women. That is, they need to continue in, in faith, love, sanctification, and self-control. 
The word that is translated continue is the word minnow. Minnow is that important word from John 15, abiding in Christ, remaining. It's a fellowship term. And so what, what Paul is, every time you have this word, it, it primarily will bring that into the foreground. And that is that uh, the woman experiences sanctification, experiential sanctification, as she f- fulfills her role within the home as a mother and a wife, if she continues, so it's not limit. It's not primarily that childbearing act. It's not that. That is part of it, but it is not the primary thing. The primary thing is what comes after the if. If they continue, uh, and that word is minnow. If they remain, which is a, f- a fellowship term, in faith, love, and holiness with self control. That's the spiritual life, and so that's where the emphasis uh, needs to be. Uh, in my opinion. All right, that brings this study to a close. And next week, we'll come back and we'll get back into Judges, back into Judges chapter 6 with, uh, I think, one of the uh, most amusing little stories in Judges, which is Gideon. A lot of interesting things that go on with Gideon in Genesis chapter 6. Father, thank you for this opportunity to work through these issues And I pray that it will make each of us think more about these sexual identity challenges that we face in this culture and thinking through them in terms of what the Scripture says. And, Father, we have to start with these distinctions that the Scripture establishes as absolutes, and then whatever else may seem... um, May, may seem odd to us or may, may seem like the world has a point that we need to stick with Scripture uh, because we don't understand everything, but the God who wrote Scripture certainly understands any, everything, and he sets these as absolutes. And we pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.